Hello, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another FUDS on Film podcast. I'm Scott. I'm joined today by Drew. Hello there. And today, for entirely obvious reasons, we're going to talk about Lethal Weapon. All of them. One through four. So, I guess we shall just start doing that by talking about... Hmm, let me think. The first one, Lethal Weapon 1. Drew, what's that all about, for those who haven't heard of Lethal Weapon? Yes, uh, I, the first one, because we continue to be groundbreaking mavericks. <laughs> Mel Gibson was quite the hot young thing in Hollywood once upon a time yes I know weird isn't it Mel Gibson <laughs> demand that largely after the success of the Mad Max trilogy and actually he was an excellent choice to play Martin Riggs the suicidal burned out maverick cop who nobody wants to work with narrative law of course states that such a character cannot be partnered with a similarly minded person because compatibility would be chaos so he is partnered with 50 year old conservative by the book sergeant roger murtaugh who is you may be aware too old for this <laughs> casting for this character was less obviously apt with the role going to stage actor danny glover whose last film role prior to Lethal Weapon was his Whoopi Goldberg's abusive husband in Steven Spielberg's The Colour Purple. Director Richard Donner, though, felt he saw something immediately between the duo in casting, and the rest is history. Before I continue to the plot, an aside, an aside, a tangent from me, surely not to hear you cry. Also, <laughs> a tangent on a tangent, I cannot actually say me questioningly without immediately thinking, a governor. Um, that, that, that's a deeper rabbit hole to go down. <laughs> um, yes, as an aside, Lethal Weapon is that rarest of things. A film where the actors are cast substantially younger than their roles. Poor old Danny Glover, who in fact wasn't poor old Danny Glover, um, despite his age being a running joke throughout the series, who was a mere 40 when first playing the 50-year-old Murtaugh, and Mel Gibson himself only 31. Though Riggs' age, never stated, seems to stretch to whatever works for any given scene. <laughs> if Riggs was the same age as Gibson, then he was meeting special forces soldiers in Saigon at the tender age of 13. <laughs> Not for the first time, though. I may be overthinking things. <laughs> so, the plot. Well, as this is an 80s action movie, the plot is not of the most complex variety. A young woman takes one last long step off of a high balcony and rather makes a mess of the car right below her. What seemed like a consequence of the drug she was taking soon turns out to be more sinister. Her death was both a murder and a warning. The recipient of that warning is her father, an old Vietnam buddy of Murtaugh's, whose bank is a useful front for laundering the cash of a group of former soldiers and CIA agents who are now in the heroin business. At the beginning of this investigation, Sergeant Murtaugh is paired with a new partner, a frazzled vice detective called Martin Riggs, who thinks about suicide every night after the recent death of his wife of 11 years. Not an impossible number, but again, 11 years and somebody who's 31, but most dates and times with Riggs seem to come from a random number generator. <laughs> They're like chalk and cheese, so laws of narrative causality tell us that they'll be best friends by the end of the film. Their investigation takes them into danger several times, during which they bond become best friends. See? Told you. <laughs> that investigation doesn't merit much of a recap, mostly involving as it does car chases, violence, explosions, and Gary Boosie is the super creepy Mr. Joshua, the outfit's lead enforcer. 
Sadly, Riggs and Murtaugh could have saved themselves a great deal of trouble in this film, and all of the subsequent ones, if they'd first investigated whoever it is in the clearly corrupt LAPD that keeps telling the bad guys where officers are working, or which cases they're working, and numerous times where they live. Hmm. But I, not for the first time, digress. Writer Shane Black's original draft, which he himself hated, featured a conclusion in which a truck full of cocaine would explode over the Hollywood Hills, with the white powder then snowing on the Hollywood sign, which is, I think, a strong contender for the most 80s thing I have ever heard. (laughs) To be fair, it's not actually any dafter than the real ending of Lethal Weapon, in which Riggs and Mr Joshua are allowed to fight, surrounded by police officers, in potentially lethal unarmed combat on Rogers' lawn for... reasons? <laughs> but I admire the restraint. Talking of Murtaugh's home, though, and the myriad calamities that occur there in this film and its sequels, I consider it a great failing of the series that it failed to even pay lip service to the fact that the Murtaugh's must be the most hated neighbours anywhere in California. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> Nearly 35 years on, it's good to know that Lethal Weapon still stands up. It's a great deal of fun, even when my tolerance for its particular brand of action is not what it once was. Uh, When I am, well, very, very much over cars made out of nitroglycerin, or whatever it was they were seemingly filled with in the 80s. The bulk of that has much to do with Glover and Gibson. Gibson is particularly good as the emotionally troubled young officer, but Glover balances them well with his calmness and the duo just work well together and both have a lot of charisma. There are other smaller factors too. Roger's family feels like a real family, something that's surprisingly rare in a lot of films. The atmosphere in the PlayStation feels relaxed and fraternal without being too macho. The presence of the saxophone isn't immediately hateful. <laughs> to address this last point, I actually even like the presence of the saxophone here, which is a weird thing for me to be saying, even if this use has become a joke over time, used it is for comedy stings, and being blissfully absent from most of the rest of the string-heavy score. <laughs> you better get used to that score, though, as it's the same one you're going to be hearing for the next three films too, by which time you'll be A, utterly sick of it, particularly the bits that sound 95% identical to really notable moments in Die Hard, and B, have realised that composer Michael Kamen has one score and there's, uh, there's less or no Eric Clapton in later films to bail him out. <laughs> Lethal Weapon is really solid fun and where it's let down nowadays is the unnecessary instances of racism and particularly homophobia. These are things that recur through the series and by the standards of the time and the genre they're not actually so bad nor so common as you might expect and just makes them stand out more. And of course, such things tend to have a little extra something now if they're being delivered by old male. But I wouldn't let that put you off watching Lethal Weapon if you've never seen it. And I've somehow achieved not seeing Lethal Weapon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I, I suppose I have to preface any discussion of Lethal Weapon by saying that I did really enjoy my time with it again. Uh, I haven't seen this in an awful long time because, well... You kind of don't need to. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, something that's going to be ingrained upon us. Something of a standard, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Even just bearing that in mind, when I was watching it this time, having been familiar with it over the years, it's kind of cast in a different light, as most cop <laughs> dramas are by recent events, shall we <laughs> yes. say. Um, I was thinking that, I mean, this is pretty much the canonical example of the buddy cop 
uh, genre of films as it is. This is often imitated and never bettered. Um, it is a, a really solid film for all the reasons you mentioned. It's a tremendous double act. It really is great and very enjoyable to watch. But, I mean, it's not all that long ago. I mean, we're just talking kind of still kind of in the slightly pre-war era where the thought of a drama where police were helping you would have been laughable. That's why there was so many... Anything that had an investigation had private eyes in it. That's Humphrey Bogart's career. Um, because the police were so horrendously corrupt in modern society that you could not have contemplated them being dependable for any kind of investigation whatsoever. Particularly in and that police department. Exactly. Exactly what was, what was coming with. And um, the, the PR push the the police departments of the world, particularly LAPD, managed to do between the, I guess, buddy cops stuff started appearing, what, in the 70s, maybe, something like that, and it was pushed through. This is kind of the, I would say Lethal Weapon is probably the culmination of all that and kind of the peak example of it. Um, but yeah, if we're, for understandable reasons, because policemen can, you know, there's a lot of dramatic shortcuts you can take that you wouldn't need to if you're doing any other kind of, kind of drama, uh, and that's helpful if you're doing this kind of thing. But the, the way that it became so... Um, ingrained as being good guys in the dramatic sphere, while at the same time still being grossly institutionally racist, particularly at the time this was being made, um, really is quite an interesting contrast. And it's not something that's kind of really got any better throughout the years, as we've seen, uh, and with all the recent protests uh, going on, and even what we've seen in the UK recently with our protests about the bill to stop protests, and people being... being, uh, being beating up as that, which is not great optics. So yeah, all that kind of stuff was playing on my mind when I was watching it again, and it really got in the way of what was otherwise a very uncomplicated and very interesting, uh, very fun film to watch. Um, so it, it takes a bit of... I know you, you kind of touched upon other instances, racism and homophobia and all that kind of stuff that will go through it, which is just kind of sadly taken as kind of par for the course for this kind of thing. Um, oh yeah, it's not so, specific to this film at all, unfortunately. It's, it's yeah. the time and the genre in particular, but it, and it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be a kind of and a bit of trepidation going back to this for those reasons. Um, yeah. But just, they do stick out and it's like, it's because it's, it's so unnecessary. Yeah. Because it's, it's so casual and that's what bothers me. It's just, um, people were just Ass hats, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They definitely weren't thinking of. I'm entirely on board with political correctness. So I don't care what anyone says. Um, yeah, but again, you have to make a little bit of adaptation for the time that this came in. And if you do that, then yes, *Lethal Weapon* stands up incredibly well. It's a really good action film. It has a, a, a great central chemistry between the two leads. Um, Shane Black's script is witty. It's clever. It's frequently very funny, and as you mentioned, has quite a lot of characterization and fairly believable deep characterization for characters which you would not necessarily expect from this kind of thing yeah and you probably won't get from the rest of the series uh but this is clearly the high point of it and it's it's really good uh, it is a terrific um film to, re- to revisit and I, I heartily enjoyed my time with it again yes it is a bit of an artifact of the era but yeah it was a lot of fun i enjoyed it yeah i think it's still a really really solid um, film. It's, you know, the archetype of the genre. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been... And there are there are other films around that time, kind of like 40 hours, another 40 hours, mm-hmm. um, back when Nick Nolte was understandable. <laughs> yeah. Um, Unless Boosie-ish, yeah. I guess Stakeout as well. It's, um, mm-hmm. you know, Colin, I think... Uh, another 40 hours came before this, I think, but... Um, 
stake it was more just kind of trying to ape it uh, and obviously the culmination of this is um, Shane Black returning to this very genre in The Nice oh, yeah. Guys which is fantastic yeah but yeah uh, it still stands up and here's the thing you watch this and for all the problems of potentially separating the art from the artist and things and how you know, generally unpleasant a person Mel Gibson has turned out to be there was a reason he was a big star Oh yeah, he's yeah. a good actor. He's really watched. He's got heaps of charisma, mm. um, and this film is one of the ones that really showcased it because uh, Mad Max had been Mad Max was a cult film, basically. Yeah, uh, and most Americans don't even know there was one. The one they're familiar with, Mad Max Two, that was known as the Road Warrior. There, like they weren't aware mm-hmm. that was the second film at all for the most part. But it's a cult film, and like he's. Max Rokotansky is a fairly blank character. Yeah, yeah. He's kind of just like the human littlest old boy because they're wandering and stuff's happening around him. <laughs> they're the focus yeah. of it. But somebody obviously saw something in him at the time, um, gave him this, and that started a great career. Of a lot of problems that I've really liked. And it's like, it's just, why did he turn out to be such an asshat? Why did he ruin things? <laughs> yes. um, but it's still perfectly watchable in this, um, and more so, more than perfectly watchable. So yeah, I, I don't think you should let um, him being a jackass nowadays, so it's a jackass then, just didn't know it, um, put you off of watching this, what's like a real classic of the action comedy genre. Oh yes, and uh, cinema on all sides of the camera is filled with innumerable jackasses, which if we start yes. discounting, then we'll never see anything again. And there's an awful lot of other people working on these kind of things that made such a good film between you know Shane Black and uh, even Richard Donner's direction is you know, punchy and pacey and keeps everything moving really tightly. Um, all the comic beats are delivered really well. It is not saying anything particularly original to say that this is the pinnacle of the buddy cop genre, and uh, yeah. It is for all those reasons. It's just really good. <laughs> What's quite interesting, actually, though, is that you mentioned Shane Black's script being quite funny. Uh, and lots of other Shane Black's mm. films have been incredibly funny. Although, apparently, a lot of the humour in that isn't actually his. That was punched up by Jeffrey yeah. Bohm, who is the person who wrote the screenplay for the next entry. So, Scott, did that hold up as well as the first one? Well, we're talking, of course, about Lethal Weapon 2, um, which Mel Gibson's detective Martin Riggs and Danny Glover's detective Roger Murtaugh return two years later in order to do what was fashionable for sequels at the time, that being more or less the same thing again, but cranked up a bit. And here the duo stumble into a plot involving the smuggling of Krugerrands, going all the way up to South African Consul General Arjun Rudd, played by Joss Ackland, and his attack dog, uh, security agent Pieter Vorsted, Derek O'Connor. Again, both strong South African uh, presences played by uh, an Englishman and an Irishman if I remember correctly um, yeah, So, but doing the accent because it's funny uh, uh, warned off the case, diplomatic immunity don't you know, uh, and assigned babysitting junior's duties for Joe Pesky's uh, federally protected witness Leo Getz, most famous of course for his snappy catchphrase anything you desire, Leo acquires <laughs> I think that was it, I may remember that wrong um, Anyway, what I'm trying to get at is that the lads cannot stop sniffing around the case with Leo in tow, leading to, well, the sort of conflicts, chases and grips that you'd expect from a sequel to Lethal Weapon. And it is a solid sequel and very enjoyable on its own terms. It is not as good as the original for all of the decidedly unoriginal reasons, most of them common to any film series that studios have decided should become a franchise. The character developments of Shane Black's 
unfilmed script for the project is largely jettisoned in favour of keeping Riggs and Murtaugh much the same, but with some of the rougher edges filed off for a more mass-market appeal. Uh, But there's more than enough chemistry between Gibson and Glover for that not to be too big of an issue. Its primary problem is a need to be seen to turn up the dials a bit from the original with mixed success. The Afrikaner villains are luxuriously hateful, (laughs) but the perceived needs to tie into Riggs's past as a bridge too far in a series that was never admittedly all that high in the believability index, uh, but coupled with the killing off of half of the duo's barely mentioned detective colleagues and the short shrifty to love interest Patsy Kenzie also being killed, then maybe this envelope cannot quite cope with this degree of pushing. And <laughs> I mean, certainly there's much worse cases of sequelitis Indeed, we'll get to them. Uh, And this has maintained much of the charm, chemistry and kinetics of the first film, so it is still a pretty enjoyable watch. Returning to your question, I can't remember if this hell holds up quite as well as it did uh, back in the day. I can't remember the first time I watched Lethal Weapon 2. Um, I I don't actually recall much of Lethal Weapon 2 at all, to be honest, apart, of course, from diplomatic immunity, which has been repeated many times. isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Diplomatic Um, immunity. And uh, um, I was pleasantly surprised i think when i was going back to this it is it is not as good as lethal weapon uh, lethal weapon one but it's not a massive step down which um mm. i was not expecting to mm. be honest uh, this actually maintains an awful lot of the charm and to be fair a lot of the flaws of the first film it's still a bit casual in its approach to, to racism but it's a bit more excusable in this because of the characters who are being racist uh, it makes a bit more sense um and uh, it's an enjoyable watch. Um, I was even less annoyed by um, uh, Leo Getz as I thought I might have been. I, I, I seem to remember the, the worst parts of him. Anytime actually he's on screen, I actually quite like Joe Pesci because, well, he's Joe Pesci. How, how could you not like him? Um, yeah, so it is pretty good. I, I don't have any particular qualms that I've not already mentioned there. Uh, it is not quite on a par with Lethal Weapon 2, but I've seen much, much worse drop-offs in quality between the one and the two of any kind of sequel fil- uh, film. So, yes, it, it is It is still worthy of a place in your collection. Yeah, it, it's a really solid sequel. The and I like Joe Pesci a lot, and I think it's the reason I don't find that character as annoying as I ought to, but um, <laughs> it's the films we'll come to where it begins to become a bit of a problem mm-hmm. for me, certainly on these rewatches. Yeah, Lethal Weapon 2 is really solid. It's... It's got good villains in this. Um, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the strong point is, of it, yeah. It's really, really just hateful. Horribly, <laughs> horrible, horrible character. And again, the racism in this makes sense because it is a bit the the apartheid regime in South Africa, sort of, yeah. you know, vaguely. <laughs> to a degree, yes. yes um, but you're black. <laughs> <laughs> it is one of those films, though, and it's not uncommon in the genre, but it does not pay to think about it. Don't no. think about it. It'll not serve you well. <laughs> Riggs and Rika are assaulted by not one but two helicopter gunships, <laughs> destroy his um, his trailer, um, and afterwards, like you know, no police, no hospitals, just casually back to Rika's flat. Okay, <laughs> um, uh, and then like the, I guess, the the whole film actually is from like, basically the opening scene is stupid. It makes no sense. Is they're chasing. The guy in the red BMW, the guy who plays Wade Boggs in the Shawshank Redemption, I forget his um, name. Mm-hmm. And he, he's got a, a boot full of Kruger hands. Why? Why? It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> it's because they had to find some way to get them interested in South Africans. Um, yes. it, it, it doesn't make any sense, especially when later on they have a container full of American dollars that's getting shipped back to South Africa. It's like, it, 
it didn't make any sense. Why is that there? It's, it's really good. So yeah. yeah, don't think about it. And it's a really solid um, 1980s action film. A lot of fun. Uh, I mean, as is kind of common for these things, the women get a pretty short shrift. Yeah. These things do tend to be sausage fests. Patsy Kensett, who's adequate. Um, and, I mean, I don't mean that necessarily to criticise her. She's not given a lot to do. Yeah, she's there to be the pretty girl that gets fridged for um, rigs to go really mad and pull down a house with a pickup truck. Which again, don't <laughs> think about it. Yeah. Um, what are it, you talking about? This house is on stilts. <laughs> yes, it's. Um, but yeah, it, it it's fun anyway. Um, even if you, know, you, you don't want to also think about the kind of extrajudicial killing that rigs is doing of people. Um, people mm, he doesn't yeah. necessarily know of bad guys but they're in the right place at the right time so we'll just shoot them okay yeah. um, <laughs> one amazing thing that um, feels quite different now given that this is about this criminal white supremacist who has enriched himself through political office um, <laughs> when they're in the shipping container at the end and Riggs says ah oh, it's like they won the Donald Trump lotto <laughs> uh, I thought that was um, quite amusing <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I think then I give away how I feel about the next two films, but certainly the first two really solid, still hold up, and are um, things I would definitely recommend. Yeah, yeah. So perhaps a bit of foreshadowing, but uh, shall we move on to Lethal Weapon Three then, if uh, we must? Uh, loud Lethal Weapon Three. Um, yes. <laughs> and for me, at least, the series low point. It's strange that Shane Black is so 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 strongly associated with the Lethal Weapon films, since he actually only scripted one of them. And by this third outing, he's well gone, and it it shows. Yeah. Writing duties are instead taken up by Jeffrey Bohm and the Craticid writer Robert Mark Kamen, but it's certainly not his best work, with the seeming remit having been make it much more boring, but also much, much louder. <laughs> The premise this time is that corrupt former LAPD Lieutenant Jack Travis, played by Englishman Stuart Wilson, is using his knowledge of police procedures to steal confiscated weapons and armour-piercing, cop-killing ammunition from the LAPD stores. Why the cops have this cop-killing ammunition is not made clear, so again, don't think about it. These thefts are being investigated by Rene Russo's Lorna Cole, an internal affairs detective, an investigation into which Riggs and Murtaugh stumble after trying to stop an armed robbery while busted down to patrolmen for blowing up a building. This plotline only exists to loosely link together a series of action set pieces that are very much more than what came previously, but are conspicuously not better. Joe Pesci's Leo Getz also returns, with the former money launderer turned government witness now... Rogers estate agent for <laughs> some reason. I mean, perhaps the film wasn't headache inducing enough without him. <laughs> I've probably given short shift to that plot recap there, so um they get the bad guy. Mostly by <laughs> means of shooting a lot of things and blowing a lot of things up. By this third film, the saxophone's presence is now in no way acceptable and has moved into being a substantial part of the score. So that's extra non-good. <laughs> As is the hilarious Mickey Mousing of the music while our heroes assault people. Yay! <laughs> there are some weird tonal shifts going on too. And it's really frustrating as the subplot of Murtaugh dealing with having shot and killed a teenage friend of his son's is emotional, dark, and quite well handled by Danny Glover, at least for the confines of the genre. 
apparently not of much interest to the screenwriters or director as it gives way too quickly to comedy yucks and a bad sitcom level misunderstanding. Contrast that too to the early scene where Riggs traumatises a member of the public by threatening to shoot him for jaywalking. What a card! (laughs) Imagine how that would have played then, let alone now, if the victim of the joke had been black instead of white. I should probably have um, some thoughts on the direction, editing and photography, but to be honest, I wasn't paying enough critical attention to that because loud (laughs) in every way. Oh, and because this film has always made me wonder how retirement from the LAPD works. Apparently you can just decide not to. Very very flexible workspace. Very modern. (laughs) Yeah. I said this film gave me a headache. And I'm not sure if I can establish a direct causal link, but it seems to play out. Uh, it oh, seems it like the one. kind of film that wouldn't do just headaches. I mean, what within the first 10 to 15 minutes of this film, what, they've demolished an entire building and embarked on one of the most ridiculous car chases uh, that we've seen in, in, in quite some time. Um, and, and I think also, uh, as you mentioned, threatened the life of that kid, uh, that, that guy doing the jaywalking for no particularly good reason other than they thought it'd be funny. Um, yeah, yeah. Like I if that if he'd been black and a police oh, officer yeah. walks up and says, I'm going to shoot you, oh, that <laughs> plays so differently. Yeah, yeah. And it, that's just kind of my issue with Lethal Weapon 3 for the most part, is that if the one kind of flying ointment for Lethal Weapon 2 was that it needed to be a bit extra, a bit more, it needed to be turning the dials up a little bit over the first film, then Lethal Weapon 3 is very much a kind of hold my beer uh, kind of situation (laughs) with it where it's just going absolutely all out and I mean I can to a degree sort of understand why you would do that but it's just made a big wall of noise that I can't quite get behind Um, it's difficult to care about anything, I mean there's probably something in there are elements in the script that I do kind of like. The whole point of it being a corrupt cop or ex-cop that is kind of the the, the bad guy, and mm-hmm. that that does have some resonance, particularly in the modern age. But it is just not particularly well handled, and none of it's particularly well examined, and all of it's just really noisy and difficult to care about. The total shift size to mention a bit more than really the weapon four, but yeah, it's. It's always had a balance between the, the dramatic and the comedic elements, and it gets progressively more out of whack as you go along. It, it was better handled because in the first film because Shane Black's quite good at this sort of thing. Mm. Um, it's, it's kind of the point of his career for the most part, and he can he writes some really witty dialogue where you can make what is ultimately dark content. You know, there's nothing particularly uh, light-hearted about. Lethal Weapon 1, but it's also funny because the character dialogue is wittily written, and it gets progressively dumber as the series goes on and it gets more like a sitcom and Lethal Weapon 3 really suffers from that because it has some of the darkest content at the same time as some of the stupidest content and it makes it really hard yes, it, it just makes it really hard to care about, it's it is just a bad film. It is difficult to watch. There is still some bright moments in there. Um, again, because Danny Glover and Mel Gibson have so much charisma together that they can kind of bluster their way through a lot of this mm. without... It kind of salvages it somewhat. I mean, I found ultimately it is watchable, but I wouldn't describe it as anywhere close to good. Um, it is... 
I'm also of the opinion that it is the least of uh, the four Lethal Weapon films. Um, it just doesn't quite hang together well enough. It's just trying to be a bit too loud. Now, clearly that worked in terms of its box office. I believe this was the most successful of them. Uh, but that's no marker for quality. And this uh, this is the worst of them for, for my money. Uh, yeah, nope. Um, I would not particularly want to watch this again anytime soon. Yeah, and it's sort of just... It just kind of feels like a lot of people involved just didn't care that much, and it just kind of so full of just like wee niggles and and kind of wee things that just like make sense. Like the scene where they go to the ice hockey rink, and they clearly they wanted like a big set piece and like an, an interesting location, so that they burst yeah. onto the ice in the middle of an ice hockey game. But then there were so many shots where people are being shot on the ice, and you're seeing Leo lie with a, a bullet wound in his arm, and the players are still playing behind them. Yeah. Because it's stuffed. No, nobody told them like no, you you would be like what stopping play this, but like they're like oh no, we're ice hockey players, so we've been asked to be in this film. So what we're supposed to do is play ice hockey, right? It's like <laughs> people weren't paying attention to the details. Yeah, and then the thing that it's also kind of bothered me, and perhaps people with slightly less good memories maybe don't notice this as much. It wouldn't bother them, but uh, there's a a very minor character in the first two films. This kind of older black guy who walks with a stick, um, who's kind of like one level below their captain or something. You all see him around the squad. He's called Willie. The same actor is suddenly in this as a guy who runs a burger joint called Fast Eddie. Like, we're supposed to not realise it's the same guy. It's like, <laughs> it wasn't that many years before um, Lethal Weapon 2. Um, to Lethal Weapon 3. Um, Star Trek does that a lot, and Star Trek's way worse. But it's like, it's the same. And the Bond films, so, you know, like, it's. It's a common thing, but he was a police officer in the last film, but he's a different person now. Okay, I can recognise people's faces. That's how you know who they are. Yeah. (laughs) It's a fairly common ability, you know. That's uh, just a a nit that I wanted to pick, but it's just, it's just so kind of, it's loud, like an actual volume loud in the way it's mixed, but it's just kind of visually loud as well, if you understand what I mean by that. It's just... It's just like they thought they had to have more instead of just hmm. better. No, have better. Don't just like turn everything up. It doesn't work. I mean, it's, it suffers. Lethal Weapon Two did for did this for a degree, but Lethal Weapon Three in particular is a film that only exists because the last one made more money than the previous one did. Um, it, there's no artistic reason for this or these characters to come about again. Yeah. Um, you know, they clearly didn't have any particular vision for how they wanted anything to develop. It's just, well, these guys make money, so let's have them make a bit more money. And I don't disagree with that as long as the film itself is amusing at the end of the day, as long as it's entertaining. And Lethal Weapon 3 does not pass that bar for me. Um, so it is both uh, a failure on sort of just, just actual practical grounds of it being a good film and the kind of more arty-farty um, artistic merits of it having any kind of purpose to exist. It is just an engine to make money. And to be fair, it made money, but it is not a good film. So, yeah. so yeah. It's the charisma it's the and the the kind of camaraderie between Riggs and Murtaugh mm-hmm. and between Gibson and Glover that, that kind of salvages it and makes it watchable. Yes. Um, I, just, I wouldn't particularly suggest watching it. It's just because the rest of it's kind of so kind of rubbish, <laughs> <Life>. really. <Yes. laughs> um, right, so we're going to move on to the last one now. The whole Lethal Weapon series played itself out in just 11 years mm-hmm. uh, with its final installment in 1998 with Lethal Weapon 4, which, you know, for whatever else it does, right or wrong, 
is yet another film that squandered Jet Li so it can get bent. <laughs> yes, I, I don't recall 1998 calling out for the Lethal Weapon outing after the six-year gap, but here it is, and we all have to deal with it. Thankfully, it is much easier to deal with this than the third outing. Mm. In what's close to being a bit of character development, Gibson's rigs is starting to come round to the long-held position of Glover's Bartol that they are indeed getting too old for these activities, uh, particularly with Rene Rousseau's Lorna Cole on the backstretch of a pregnancy. Uh, I meant to say, probably the only... Plus point in Lethal Weapon 3, I thought, was Renny Russo. Um, I like her character. Um, less so in Lethal Weapon 4, actually, because she's quite sidelined. But yeah, Lethal Weapon 3, uh, I quite enjoyed her. Um, however, uh, the dynamic duo cannot help but stumble into trouble. And here, more or less accidentally, they uncover a people smuggling operation that puts them in the crosshairs of Jet Li's Wassing coup and the assorted goons of the Triad outfit in LA, with the usual increasing stakes as the film progresses, including yet more damage to cinema's most frequently destroyed family home. <laughs> Riggs and Murto are aided by their endeavour by Joe Pesci's Leo Getz again and also with Chris Rock's Detective Lee Butters who I've no particular beef with but it does sort of become totemic of the series increasingly wrought struggle between the dramatic and the comedic elements always ending up a little bit too far on the comedic side the original got away with it because Black's comedy is witty but efforts since then have been a touch too broad for my tastes uh, particularly when mixed in with this level of violence uh, speaking of violence Jet Li's pretty good isn't he uh, we all knew that and continue to know this despite Hollywood having repeatedly failed to do anything useful with him. Um, I would argue apart from this, where his brand of dispassionate ass-kicking makes for a ruthlessly effective bad dude. It's certainly by no means the best use you could make of Jet Li, but it's better than most other attempts were. It's just there's not enough of it. That's the point. It's the quantity, I think, in this film more than anything. Like, more Jet Li, please, because Jet Li's great. Absolutely. Um, and while... Lethal Weapon 4 does start to feel like an, an unhealthily diluted formula from Lethal Weapon 1, and it's dragged out a touch too long. This is the first film, I think, that broke the two-hour mark in the franchise, and it doesn't need to be that long. Um, it is, however, still fun to revisit the characters and their antics, even if they're starting to feel more like they are in a sitcom than in a crime drama. However, I can't think of many other fourth entries in a series that are as enjoyable as this one, so it's got to count for something. It is certainly not the worst member of this box set. I don't mind Lethal Weapon 4, too bad, too much. It, it's it's okay. Um, I, I can't go to bat for it for much more than that, but it's certainly much more enjoyable than Lethal Weapon 3 was. Um, it's arguably taking the light-heartedness a bit too far, particularly given what happens towards the end of the film, but still a bit, um, it's, it's all right. Um, it's not a patch on even Lethal Weapon 2, but it is not the worst thing you could watch with with your time on this earth. Yeah, uh, the reason we're doing this episode is simply because I'd taken a fancy a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, to watch the Lethal Weapon films again, and I mentioned mm-hmm. it, and thought, we should maybe talk about those. On that viewing a month or so ago, I had actually decided that Lethal Weapon 4 was the best one since the first one. And then when we decided we were going to record, I watched them all again yesterday because I hadn't bothered like watching them critically in the same way. Um, <laughs> because, you know, I'm a fool at times. I thought, I'll, I'll watch all four of these <laughs> films again that I've just watched. Uh, but I to take notes and things this time. And I feel a bit differently. I, I kind of like the warmth of this one. There's more interplay between the characters. Yeah. But uh, it's not as good a story. It's not as good an action film as two. So kind of swung around a bit that I prefer to now but that could very much be something that might change my mood yeah um, yeah I bet regardless both of them are so much better than the third one um, <laughs> yeah. it's, just, it's just the structure of this film is a bit odd the biggest problem apart from obviously not using Jet Li enough which is 
always going to be a problem if you don't do that. Uh, yeah. Is Chris Rock, because basically a good three different points to film, the film um, stops for Chris Rock to deliver one of his comedy skits, like from his stand-up. Yeah. It, it's so awkward. Yeah. It's not like Chris Rock's bad and he can act just well. I mean, as Pookie in New Jack City or um, as Rufus in uh, Dogma or something, you know, so he can do it. But it's like, they clearly wanted Chris Rock to do, well, be Chris Rock. Chris Rock, yeah. Um, <laughs> and the film kind of almost grinds to a halt. I mean, the bits he's saying are reasonably funny, so it's it's not as um, difficult to watch as it might be, but it has no business being in this film. Yeah, it, yeah. it just grinds, screeches to a halt while he delivers some stand-up, effectively. Yeah. And then That's why it's 20 it. minutes too long, because there's 20 minutes of Chris Rock stand-up material in there. Yeah, yeah um, <laughs> and you could you could have him playing that the role, and it would be fine. But just take out the stand-up. Why is that in there? It's, it's not a stand-up, it's a film. <laughs> um, it also... It, this may be like the most annoying version of Leo gets because I think I might have, when I watched it again yesterday, I was ready to scream. Um, had um, Joe Pesci said, whatever, whatever, one more time, because it was doing my napper. <laughs> um, again, the, the fact that that's tolerable is because I like Joe Pesci, but the character was just um, really grinding my gears by that point. Mm-hmm. Whatever, like he's a thirteen-year-old um, girl or something, you know. It's just, uh, and again, it's another one of those films you don't want to think about. Oh, we, we've caught this um, person we think is involved. Oh no, I'm a waiter. Okay, prove it. And he says some food. Yeah, good enough for That's me. Then on your me. way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, the real issue I had this time, and I mean, I must have been aware before, but maybe I just didn't think about it but Roger and Riggs are bullies yeah uh, well cops what do you expect no but I mean like the person's meant to be their friend like to Leo they're like it's, it's, it's like kind of yeah. it's not funny it's just mean yeah yeah uh, like, I mean, yeah, taking his mean? brand new gun and throwing it into the uh, the ocean uh, like, you're going to yeah. give him that $2,000 what you probably paid for that and then another they shot his car tyres and stuff it's like you see uh, I, I kind of don't like bullies and the way they're yeah. bullying him and this and this somebody's supposed to be their friend like nah eh, it kind of turns me off the characters who are otherwise extrajudicial killing aside you know that small matter <laughs> uh, yeah. but you know generally quite likeable and like it's actually in this they're kind of assholes yeah yeah but you know like most of the the good bits of the things is the, the the interplay between them and uh, yeah, unfortunately, she says so it's Renee Russo's sidelined, but um, there are bits in there. Uh, yeah. She's playing off of Mel Gibson quite well. Darlene Love more or less completely disappears from this film, though. She's yeah. barely in it at all, which is a pity. But yeah, so like the interplay is there, and there's that kind of warmth. It's just, um, I don't know, it's just, it needs a wee bit more bite, I think. And considerably less C4 filled cars because it's particularly bad in this so. <laughs> there's one car that gets hit by a train and explodes they get hit by something else and explodes again <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's become just such a, a ridiculous cliche and a ridiculous trope that like cars block when you're hit but I mean this film is just taking it to the limit <laughs> and yeah. it's crazy it's kind of infuriating if, if cars actually did that I mean people would never get in them <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean and this isn't like 
um, top secret. This isn't them making um, fun of it or something. It's like, no, they're deadly serious. Like, these cars are exploding all over the shop. Yeah. It, it, it's not the sort of parody that arguably Shane Black himself would go on to write about this kind of uh, film. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and The Nice Guys. It's uh, yeah. th- th- This is pr- supposedly to be taken seriously despite the fact that it's trying so much to cram so much comedy into it at the same time as having you know quite vicious violence and <laughs> horrors visited upon the kind of families involved. It, it, it just can't quite get the balance right. It, it doesn't completely ruin it, but yeah, it, it is enough to make it an average film um, rather than something that's anything like as memorable as the first uh, first of the outings. Yeah, it's a it's a fairly slight and forgettable thing. It's, and if you like the rest of the series, then watch it because it's you're still going to get entertained. Mm. Yeah, um, it's just it's it's perhaps inessential. But yeah, I mean, for all that, for the problems these films have, they do stand up pretty well. They're still pretty solidly entertaining as a series, and there's only four of them. Yes. So I don't regret having gone back to watch that. I, I think, apart from perhaps the first one, I may well never watch any of these again. I think I'm probably done with them for good now. I don't need to watch them. I know them so well. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you've if you've not seen them and you like kind of 80s, 90s action films, then probably, if you like them, you probably have seen them. But uh, check them out. <laughs> but if you've not seen them in a while, but you like them, go back. They do stand up. Yeah, yeah. But definitely worth a rewatch for anyone that's uh, any tolerance for, for this kind of thing. If you, you somehow haven't seen the first one, then definitely do that. At least that's a, an unqualified recommendation for anyone, regardless of what your tastes are. I think that's a, a really good example of the genre that most people will like. The rest of them, uh, your mileage may vary, but, um, but I don't think any of them are, are absolutely awful. So um, I can't say that much about any other uh, series that lasted four installments. Um, so... Holds up pretty well and certainly worth some of your time, yeah. Okay, that's us for this episode. If you want to contact us, you can do so. Usual methods, email podcast at fudsonfilm.com, Twitter at fudsonfilm, uh, facebook.com slash fudsonfilm, all the most obvious ways. Um, and that's it. Uh, bye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>